<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, wackos. Welcome to another episode of Without a Country. I am Corinne Fisher. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. I'm still a little sick, but I'm significantly better than I was last week. Woof, things got even bleaker. Uh, Wednesday, I mean, I was like hallucinating on Theraflu. Although I will say, it, I feel like if you have the flu really badly, and this is a free ad for Theraflu, there's only one thing that works, and it's Theraflu. People like to say Zycam. I use Zycam and stuff. That, none of that... If you catch, you know, if you catch the flu, like this, the, the, in the moment that the particles come into your space, something like Zycam uh, or, you know, emergency, those kind of things work if you catch it at the moment. But if you like wake up sick um, or get sick really intensely all at once, you got to go Theraflu. And it's specifically the nighttime Theraflu powder that you drink as the hot tea. That's the one that works. I discovered this, God, almost like 10 years ago. I think someone recommended it to me when I when I lived in Williamsburg. And like drink it literally in bed because you will be, you will, it'll knock you the fuck out and do not mix it with anything else, Jesus. Um, And uh, it'll knock you the fuck out. So you have to be like in bed, ready to go, ready to fall asleep. But it will put you into a trance and then you will wake up and you will feel, I'm going to guarantee at least I'm going to guarantee at least 30% improvement, if not more. Um, this shit is magic. It's the only thing worth getting. All the times I've gone to the doctor, all this, no, no, none of that shit. It was all, all a waste of time, except for Theraflu. My best friend also swears by Z-Packs. You have to go and get that at the doctor, though. And I just, I really don't really spend a lot of time going to the actual doctor for the flu or a cold because I'm not a baby. My best friend's not a baby either, but she's just, you know. He's like more a responsible family lady, you know. I'm responsible, but in different ways. Um, all right. Well, I don't think that – I don't think we heard that. I just pressed a, a thing, but I don't think it came through. <laughs> Every, everyone's annoyed at me because I'm the only podcast that uh, decided to record today because uh, there's this – 
there's that much snow on the ground and everyone canceled. Um, you know, and that's the difference in our work ethics. So here I am going to heading to LA tomorrow. If you haven't grabbed a ticket, if you're in Los Angeles and you haven't grabbed a ticket to see guys, we fucked live at the comedy store at the 8 PM is completely sold out. Even this one stinking VIP booth that we were, that was driving me nuts because no one wanted to buy the tickets to this weird VIP booth in the corner. Even those tickets are sold out. It's completely sold out. Every single fucking seat in the house is sold out. Uh, we added like a week and a half ago, a 1030 show uh, that already has really good movement on it. Um, so, I mean, it's not going to sell out so you can buy a ticket day of. But there are a lot, you know, if you want to get a good seat, I would buy your ticket sooner rather than la- later to the 1030 p.m. show. It's going to be completely different from the 8 p.m. show. And uh, it's just going to be fun. Christina and I haven't done the comedy store together in Los Angeles in years. Like, I think since before covid so it's going to be a real i would say homecoming but it's not our our home but it's our home away from home we fucking love the comedy store so see you there it'll be a really fucking fun night so many of our friends are coming out too so real you know this is our super bowl really this is our super bowl um today i am doing our valentine's day episode i am wearing the avril lavigne love suck shirt but I am not at all a love sucks person, which I get, I think a lot of people think that I would be some kind of a goth, like love doesn't exist, blah, blah, blah. I don't feel that way at all. I don't feel that way at all. And I think it really aligns if you actually think about it in a complex way. That stance aligns with my personality a lot more than love sucks, right? Like, who am I? I'm someone who explores uh, multiple sides of things, really thinks things out. So, of course, I think that love exists more more so for me in my exploration, mostly on guys we fucked over the past few years. It's not that love doesn't exist. It's more that, like, just love doesn't do much for me, right? Love in its romantic form. does It doesn't do much for me. And, you know, I do trace that back to my childhood, right? I have a joke about it, you know? Like, it's it's... I just, there's nothing really that some fucking 20-something, 30-something, 40-something-year-old guy is going to do for me that, uh, you know, or a way that he's going to treat me that isn't still paling in comparison to to the way my dad treated me. So, you know, until you're treating me uh, as nicely as Randy Fisher did, uh, I'm not interested. Um... And that's uh, and that's where I stand on Valentine's Day. But yeah, I just I love La- Avril Lavigne. Also, it's such a joke because I don't think Avril Lavigne thinks love sucks either. This woman's been married multiple times. This girl, this this chick loves love. She loves love. Um, so yes. Also, when I went to the Avril Lavigne concert last time, my mom referred to me as her eternal teenager. I go, Mom, Avril Lavigne's the same age as me. Like, we're growing up together. It's not like I'm going to going to some uh, weird tweet. It's not like I'm going to a JoJo Siwa concert, although I would. Although I would. She's talented. I love JoJo Siwa. Um, and I've been loving her coming out story. It's just so wonderful to see people um, feel comfortable, like, being announcing who they are and then really leaning into it and you just see like the joy emanate she joy always emanated from her but in a way that it hadn't previously and I'm so happy for her um and she keeps still wearing those big bows in her in her hair and that's a beautiful thing right just because you're a big old lesbian doesn't mean you can't wear a big fancy feminine way too feminine for me bow in your hair and I love that for you, Jojo Siwa. Live your fucking truth. Um, all right. So in honor of Valentine's Day, this week's enemy of the state is no one. No one. I sat on my bed this afternoon and I thought and I thought and I thought and I said, I'm not 
I hold no, I harbor no anger towards anyone this week. Enemy of the state. Yeah, so for Valentine's Day, my enemy of the state is no one. And I recommend that you you guys for Valentine's Day, whether you have a romantic significant other or or not, you guys give yourself um, the gift of not harboring anger in your heart for just one day. It feels light, okay? It really it feels um, extremely light. And um, there's a lot of darkness in the world right now. I mean, people like to say right now, there, I mean, there's always been darkness in the world. We, just because of technology and social media, um, we have more access to knowing the darkness. But when, there's always been a, a lot of darkness, um, believe me. Um, so, yeah. It is, uh, it is a fine time. Uh, it's a fine of, of a time as I need to be alive, in my opinion. You know, always bad, always good, whatever. Uh, all right. So I'm going to start off, actually, with Corinne Fisher's party topic of the week. Um, You guys have really been loving this segment, um, and so I am going to um, continue doing it. This week, it is a topical segment because, of course, you know I love to know the origin of a holiday, and I don't – I mean, maybe we've gone over this on the show before, but I certainly didn't remember it, so we're going to go over it again, and uh, you do need to repeat things like any good podcaster – um, I was reading articles about it, how to become better, um, does uh, repeat things uh, so that you can actually retain them, right? Because if, you know, you're doing hundreds of episodes, you're talking uh, off script for multiple hours a week and you say something once in passing, that's not going to really stick in most people's brains. So the important things we certainly need to reiterate. This is from an article um, from NPR and it's about the dark origins of Valentine's Day. And um, they're claiming that no one has pinpointed the exact origin of the holiday, but a lot of articles, including this one, do say it seems like the best place to start is ancient Rome. Um, so in ancient Rome, from February 13th to 15th, the Romans celebrated the Feast of Lupercalia. The men sacrificed a goat and a dog because, you know, what would a romantic holiday be without an animal dying? then whipped women with the hides of the animals they had just slain. I mean, this sounds like a fucking Andrew Tate sketch at this point. The Roman romantics were drunk. They were naked. Noel Lenski, now a religious studies professor at Yale University, told NPR in 2011, young women would line up for the men to hit them, Lenski said. They believed this would make them fertile. So it's so funny because as, as far as we've come as a society, you could, there, a lot of the themes that exist in modern, you know, uh, patriarchy uh, and misogyny still it, they, you 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 see where the roots were, right? So even though we're not actually being hit right now, the most important thing was still the fertility, the fact that we can give birth, that we can create human life, right? That's pissed men off since the beginning of fucking time that they can't do that. And they have convinced, many have convinced themselves that this is our only use. And so we got to fucking stick around um, so we can keep making babies for them, in quotes. Uh, the brutal fet included a matchmaking lottery 
in which young men drew the names of women from a jar. The couple would be uh, then be coupled up for the duration of the festival or longer if the match was right. The ancient Romans may also be responsible for the name of our modern day of love. Emperor Claudius II executed two men, both named Valentine, on February 14th of different years in the 3rd century. Their martyrdom was honored by the Catholic Church with the celebration of St. Valentine's Day. As the holiday spread, it evolved. Later, Pope Galatius I muddled things in the 5th century by combining St. Valentine's Day with Lupercalia to expel the pagan rituals. But the festival was more of a theatrical interpretation of what it had once been. Lenski added, it was more of a drunken revel, but the Christians put clothes back on it. (laughs) They love to do that. Um, That didn't stop it from being a day of fertility and love. Around the same time, this is also like if you want to get off Valentine's Day or, man, if you want to use this as a manipulative way to not have to spend money on Valentine's Day, show your girl this, right? Nothing is turning me off. And I love Valentine's Day. I love Valentine's Day. I love it when I'm single. I love it when I'm in a relationship. I love Valentine's Day. I think it's just fucking delightful. But... This, this origin story, the day of fertility, me no likey that. Me no likey that. And I, and, I, and I don't. I actually think it's really fucking cool to be a woman and to have the ability to give birth and, and I, fertility as a concept. But I don't like when men get involved in the fertility. If it was still pagan rituals and we were naked dancing in the forest celebrating women together, the fact that we can create human life. That would be sick as fuck. This, not so much. Uh, Around the same time, the Normans celebrated Gallatin's Day. Gallatin meant lover of women. That was likely confused with St. Valentine's Day at some point, in part because they sound alike. As the years went on, the holiday grew sweeter. Chaucer, uh, Chaucer and Shakespeare romanticized it in their work, and it gained popularity throughout Britain and the rest of Europe. Handmade paper cards became the tokens du jour in the Middle Ages. Eventually, the tradition made its way to the New World. The Industrial Revolution ushered in factory-made cards in the 19th century. Capitalism, 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 it's coming for you. And in 1913, Hallmark cards of Kansas City, Missouri, began mass-producing Valentines. February has not been the same since. Um, so that's a great – if you're going to a Valentine's Day party, isn't it fun? I don't know. I love when I'm at a party and instead of gossiping, talking shit, which I don't mind, but you got to really keep your circles of the gossip and talking shit tight, uh, tight, right? And also people who only gossip and only talk shit – those people are untrustworthy and they and they just suck the air out of the room. That's not fun to be around. There's like three people I gossip and talk shit with and it's about specific other people or events and it's super fun, but it's not what we spend all our time doing. So if you're at a party, um, the person who has like factoids or like really interesting um, anecdote about their life, those are the – or the dog. Those are the people I like hanging out with, okay? And I don't want to know some – I also don't want to know about whatever stupid project you're working at at work right now. I definitely am not interested in that because, I mean, no offense, but it's not going to be more interesting than what I'm working on unless – except for – you know what? That's not true. At a wedding um, not too long ago, I met someone who was working on some really interesting legislation. Um, So that would be interesting or – 
like, I mean, a cure for cancer, something like that, that I would be into that. But otherwise, I mean, it's not going to be cooler than being a stand-up comedian. Come on, this is the fucking sickest occupation. Hey, there responsible wackos over the age of 21 living in states where Delta 8 is legal. Happy Valentine's Day. Do you want to get high? Do you want to get really high? Do you want to get really super duper legally high? That sounds like a fun t- way to spend Valentine's Day if you like disassociating baby well then now's the time to go to yodelta.com where you can stock up on high quality lab tested delta 8 you know this stuff works that's why they keep buying ads because people keep buying the product they keep loving it they keep reordering it and they keep buying more ads so if you're over the age of 21 and living in the majority of states where this is legal you're gonna head over to yodelta.com and stock up on delta 8 delta 8 is found in hemp and can be legally shipped to various states to get you high at yodelta.com you can find a mix of gummies and vapes for all your getting stone needs. I can tell you that Delta 8 works and that these presidents, uh, sorry, I fucked up. I said presidents. I can tell you that Delta 8 works and that these products should be taken responsibly. So once more, that's YoDelta.com, the official Delta 8 sponsor of the Gas Digital Network. If you use promo code GAS, G-A-S, you're going to get 25% off. Once more, promo code GAS for 25% off. Yo Delta, home of the Delta 8 that will get you super high. Now, back to without a country. Um, All right. Let's move on to girl. Uh, All right. There uh, has been a lot of talk, and you can tell it's heating up. We're telling – we're getting into the fucking – Gloves off, bloodied, disgusting, throwing people under the bus nature that is uh, that happens during an American presidential election year. And it's heating up and we fucking feel it. Right. I think it happened. It started happening maybe even a little bit later because of the uh, Israel Hamas uh, war, genocide, whatever's happening. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, it's a fucking disgusting mess, um, let's call it. Uh, but uh, this popped up on Fox News. Uh, that the This was the top story, actually, on the landing page. State Attorney General officially calls on Kamala Harris to invoke the 25th Amendment to remove Biden from office. There's been a lot of talk about Biden's mind in the past few weeks and you can tell that's what they're leaning into they're going fucking hard into this guy is not fit mentally to be president that's going to be the angle and it's fine if you want to go on that or if you want to take the John Stewart daily show approach of both every of everyone's bad but as we've talked about before unless you are actively working to make a third strong political party in the United States we are once again setting us uh, ourselves up for another four years with President Donald Trump. That's what we're doing. When you talk about Biden, when you think like, because there's this uh, kind of thing about like, if you're if you're further left than Democrat, like if you're hardcore liberal, there's this type of leftist that likes to be cool by you know shitting on everything, including Biden. And listen, I'm not saying we love Biden, but again. We know that there's two choices and you know what those two choices are. And it's not okay to have only two choices. I do not argue from you. But I think what we know right now is what is also not okay is having another four years of Donald Trump being president. Okay. I think that's the most not okay thing to happen right now. And this is not even 
Democrat versus Republican at this point, I think. As I said, I think, you know what, I think there are actually three political parties that exist right now in the country. um, And liberals did a terrible job of creating the third one because two uh, belong to Republicans. There are MAGA Republicans, regular Republicans, and Democrats. That's who fucking exists right right now. And so if you think this is some kind of an anti-Republican tirade, it's absolutely not. I think that if you're a Republican and you're still... Uh, think that uh, Donald Trump is a like a good leader. You need to get your fucking head checked. Like at, at that point, and I and I don't even I don't I've known some pretty hardcore Republicans in my day, and some people who were pretty adamantly into Trump. I don't really know anyone with a, with a straight hat on who's voting for Trump these days. Uh, or maybe they'll vote for him, but like begrudgingly, but no, certainly no one who's like into it and also like begrudgingly voting for Trump. What a weird fucking move. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. And if you're wondering what the 25 fifth amendment is, um, that they're addressing in the headline of this piece, the 25th amendment is the amendment that allows the vice president together with a majority of either the principal's officers of the executive departments, um, or of such other body of uh, as Congress may be uh, may provide by law uh, to issue a written declaration that the president is unable to discharge his duties. So basically, Kamala can get a bunch of other executive officers together on her side, uh, you know, if she's powerful enough to do that, and if she decides that that's the move that she wants to make, because that's a pretty cutthroat move, right? And she can then um, issue a written declaration that the president no longer fit to serve. So that is a possibility. I guess in the back of my mind, I knew that, but I kind of forgot about it. And I thought the fact that that was the top story on Fox, I didn't love it. I mean, it was brought up by the West Virginia attorney general. So, I mean, I think I might be more powerful than the West Virginia attorney general, but this is the first I'm hearing from him in my entire life. But, you know, it's something. And, you know, Fox is so excited to hear about this. So West Virginia um, attorney general Patrick Morrissey, Biden's serious mental missteps have equally serious consequences. Republican West Virginia attorney general. Patrick Morrissey is officially calling on Vice President Harris to invoke the 25th Amendment and seek to remove President Biden from office. In a uh, Tuesday letter to Harris today, Morrissey cites the release of special counsel Robert Hur's report last week, which detailed numerous memory lapses by Biden and other frequent gaffes that Biden has commit- committed during his time in office as reasons for such drastic constitutional action to be taken. Which is kind of, to me, like a bit pish posh because you have a whole fucking team. Like, you don't really need to remember a ton of stuff. Like, my memory isn't also the greatest memory, uh, but that's why I take a lot of notes all over my house. Post-its, in my phone, lots of notes. I write on my hands. Sometimes you'll see on stage. I'm 38 years old, and I don't even smoke weed. For too long, Americans have had to stand by and watch as their president has experienced a profound cognitive decline over the last few months alone, which is so wild to say when the other choice is Donald Trump, who also experienced a profound cognitive decline, but it wasn't even just like age. It was literally a mental health crisis, some kind of personality uh, personality disorder, right? Can you imagine if Biden just did that? They would clip it and it would be all over the news. Biden has a stroke mid-sentence. It's just fucking hard to talk 
for extended periods of time. It's hard for anyone. Um, over the last few months alone, President Biden has mixed up world leaders and political figures. Okay, like, I mean, also another examples of this is like George W. Bush. <laughs> Some of the presidents have just been stupid. I'd rather have it be because your memory is lapsing than because you were just stupid the whole time. Uh, strained to address basic issues in public speeches and wandered out of events in a disoriented state, Morrissey wrote in the letter. These serious mental missteps have equally serious consequences, he added, before detailing multiple instances in which Biden's advanced age and apparent cognitive decline appeared to surface in his interactions with foreign leaders. And I mean, just as a fucking reminder, if we're talking about just age, Donald Trump and um, Joe Biden, they're fucking neck and neck, okay? Uh, Donald Trump is 77 years old, and I think what he's just, uh, Biden's just turned, he's 81. I mean, this is this is neck and neck. This is not a spring chicken against the corpse chicken. Uh, those uh, gaffes included when Biden appeared to fall asleep during the COP26 climate change conference in 2021. I would fall asleep too. And when he was forced to clarify the U.S.'s one China policy after committing to defend Taiwan militarily uh, should it be attacked. I am writing to urge you to invoke your powers under Section 4 of the 25th Amendment and declare that President Biden is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office, Morrissey added. Fox News Digital has reached out to the White House and Harris's office for comment. Her's damaging report stemming from the investigation into Biden's mishandling of classified documents said the president would face no charges, partly because his defense would possibly be that Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I like that they were like... The argument is that he would face no charges because he would, like, present himself as likable enough to not get charges. I mean, and so, so how is that different than anything Donald Trump does ever, where he kind of jokes his way out of things? Same result, just a different approach to doing it. And not even that different. Uh, oh, oh, a guy charming his way out of something and, uh, and us all as fucking stupid surface level Americans believing it. I mean, ridiculous. Uh, the report cited examples when investigators said the president's memory lapsed, including when his older son, Beau, died and caused a heightened concern among Democrats who previously backed the president, despite Republican attacks on his ability to serve. Other elected officials have also called for the 25th Amendment to be invoked after the release of the Her report, including Senator Josh Hawley, a Republican from, from Missouri, Representative Claudia Tenney, Republican New York, and Representative Guy Reschenthaler, Republican Pennsylvania. So, I mean, just a bunch of Republicans who kind of want to make things difficult for Democrats. I wish something was not, was like a little bit more creative. You know, that's, I guess that's my hope. Um, and uh, this is because I think this is a very important story. Um, the state of uh, Joe Biden's mind and because this is only they're going to keep trying to ride this wave because people really latch on to it. Even Democrats really latch on to it. Right. So I'm going to also do an opinion piece on this from The New York Times, because I think, hey, when you don't have a live person um, uh, across the table from you, I, I love opinion pieces because it kind of is like having just a bunch of different perspectives um, at the same table. So this is from The New York Times by Paul Krugman, why I am now deeply worried um, for America. 
if you want to read that along with me. Sorry, I got to look one thing up real quick. Okay. So until a few days ago, I was fear feeling fairly sanguine about America's prospects. Economically, well, we've had a year of strong growth and plunging inflation. And aside from committed Republicans who see no good, hear no good, and speak no good when a Democrat is president, Americans appear to be recognizing this progress. It has seemed increasingly likely that the nation's good sense would prevail and democracy would survive. But watching the frenzy over President Biden's age, I am, for the first time, profoundly concerned about the nation's future. It now seems entirely possible that within the next year, American democracy could be irretrievably altered. And the final blow won't be the rise of political extremism. That rise certainly created the preconditions for disaster, but it has been part of the landscape for some time now. No, what may turn this menace into catastrophe is the way the hand-wringing over Biden's age has overshadowed the real stakes in the 2024 election. It reminds me, as it reminds everyone I know, of the 2016 Fuhrer over Hillary Clinton's email server. And they keep and they will keep using this tactic because they know that it works, right? It's so much easier to bring up something that is um a concept that we all understand, right? Like an email server uh, or like the process of aging rather than really having to sit down and study the issues and study what each pres sitting president has done. This is much easier to have this jokey pop culture thing that you can chat about at the water cooler, right? And so, it, you know, it's like everyone now wants to be in involved in politics, but just a little. We don't actually want to put in the work, uh, which was a minor issue that may well have wound up uh, swinging the election to Donald Trump. As most people know by now, Robert Hur, a special counsel appointed to look into allegations of wrongdoing on Biden's part, concluded that the president shouldn't be charged, as was addressed in the other article. But his report uh, included an uncalled for and completely unprofessional swipe at Biden's uh, mental acuity, apparently based on the president's uh, difficulty in remembering specific dates. Difficulty that, as I wrote on Friday, everyone confronts at whatever age. And I mean, case in point for anyone who watches true crime, to remember in a specific date and what you were doing, I have no idea. Anytime someone says, oh, what were you doing even last Wednesday? I'm looking in my iPhone to look at my iPhone calendar. Unless it's a birthday or like a really significant day, I have, I'm not going to remember a fucking date. Stop it. Her's gratuitous treatment of Biden echoed James Comey's gratuitous treatment of Clinton. Her and Comey both seemed to want to take political stands when that was not their duty. It's a case of bureaucrats overstepping their bounds in a way that's at best careless and at worst malicious. Yes, it's true that Biden is old and will be even older if he wins re-election and serves out a second term. I wish that Democrats had been able to settle on a consensus successor a year or two ago and that Biden had been able to step aside in that successor's favor without setting off an intra-party free-for-all. And this is kind of the same thing we have. Like, so I'm not going to dispute that there isn't like a pride issue, right? Like, um, you know, with just people staying uh, in positions too long and you not saying as like, 
I guess as a person like in their 80s, I don't know what his health is like, right? So like if he's in good health, then then okay, then continue serving as presidency. But if there is anything wrong, and I'm not even talking about mes- mentally, I'm talking more about physically just to be, you know, 81, um, then I, I would hope that would be your – in your heart, if you really want what's best for the country, you would say, yeah, let's p- pick somebody else because I don't want to die and then kind of leave this job unfinished in the middle of it. But I don't know. Uh, I don't know the ins and outs of this. But speculating about whatever, uh, whether that could have happened is besides uh, the point now. It didn't happen and Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee. And also it would have had to be a pretty strong contender that they would have had to select, right? Because – you know, it seems like it would have been Kamala. I don't think she, people don't really seem to like her. Even Democrats really don't seem to like her. So I don't think she would have won against Trump. And then who are you left with? Like, who is the choice? Who would have been strong enough that the Democratic Party could select at this point to beat uh, Donald Trump? I don't know. Because it even because to me, going into this, it seemed like the Republicans actually had a lot more interesting prospects. And Donald Trump still beat all those people. No problem. It's also true that many voters think the president's age is an issue, but there's perception and there's reality. As anyone who has recently spent time with Biden, and I have, can tell you, he is in full possession of his faculties, completely lucid and with excellent grasp of detail. Of course, most voters don't get to see him up close, and it's on Biden's team to address that. And yes, he speaks quietly and a bit slowly, although this is in part because of his lifetime struggle with stuttering. And this is like, oh, you can look back he's always this is always he's not like the greatest public speaker of all time which I think is part of the reason it took him this long to become president and I what what do we say this is his this was like his third like really valiant attempt at becoming president and it happened this late in life I think in part because he is not this great public speaker he isn't JFK he isn't Barack Obama he isn't Bill Clinton you know uh he also by the way has a sense of humor which I think is important Um, Most important is that Biden has been a remarkably effective president. Trump spent four years claiming that a major infrastructure initiative was just around the corner to the point that it's infrastructure week became a running joke. Biden actually got legislation passed. Trump promised to revive American manufacturing, but didn't. Biden's technology and climate policies, the latter passed against heavy odds, have produced a surge in manufacturing investment. His enhancement of Obamacare has brought health insurance coverage to millions. If you ask me, these achievements say a lot more about Biden's capacity than his occasional verbal slips. And what about his opponent, who is only four years younger? Maybe some people are impressed by the fact that Trump talks loud and mean. But what about what he's actually saying in his speeches? I mean, nothing. That's been the case the whole time. He's saying nothing. And it is impressive. If you want to take a class in bullshit, if watch Donald Trump's speeches. I am actually genuinely impressed by how long he can speak but actually say nothing. It's incredible. It is incredible. And that is a and that is a tactic that will get you far in life. I'm not fucking around here either. It will get you far in life. Um, they're frequently rambling word salads full of bizarre claims like his assertion on Friday that if he loses in November, they're going to change the name of Pennsylvania. Not to mention confusing Nikki Haley with Nancy Pelosi and mistaking Eugene Carroll for one of his ex-wives. As I also wrote last week, Trump's speeches make me remember my father's awful last year when he suffered from sundowning. 
bouts of incoherence and belligerence after dark. And we're supposed to be worried about Biden's mental state? Over the past few days, while the national discussion has been dominated by talk about Biden's age, Trump declared that he wouldn't intervene to help delinquent NATO members if Russia were to attack them, even suggesting that he might encourage such an attack. He seems to regard NATO as nothing more than a protection racket, and after all this time, still has no idea how the alliance works. By the way, Lithuania, the NATO member that Trump singled out, has spent a larger percentage of its GDP on aid to Ukraine than any other nation. Again, I wish this election weren't a contest between two elderly men and worry in general about American gerontocracy. But like it or not, this is going to be a race between Biden and Trump. And somehow the lucid, well-informed candidate is getting more heat over his age than his ranting, factually challenged opponent. As I said, until just the other day, I was feeling somewhat optimistic, but now I'm deeply troubled uh, about our nation's future. And it's interesting because I think like on a lot of these like kind of political slash comedy shows, um, this one included, I guess, but I mean, I mean, bigger ones on TV, uh, like uh, the Daily Show. Um, there has been a lot of like, you know, jabs at both Biden and Trump, which is like, a, I, I guess is a fine approach, but it just irritates me as someone who knows a little bit more what's happening on the inside. Like for instance, I submitted a writer's packet, which is just in short, like when you're submitting for a TV show, if you're not sure of the process to write for a TV show, um, they give you uh, a list of things like you, you know, you have to write this kind of a sketch, this kind of a desk piece, this kind of an interview piece, um, you know, based on the format of the show. And sometimes they give you what it has to be about. Sometimes you can pick your own topic. And so, for instance, what I was submitting for was uh, Samantha B. And they were basically very clear that I had to be funny and I had to be political, but I also had like I was forced to take the liberal stance. And like in my heart, it's the stance I would have taken anyway. But I think like sometimes with comedy, it is stronger to not just keep approaching jokes from the same side uh, because how can something continue to be actually funny when we always know from the start of the joke what the viewpoint is? Like there are only X amount of angles that you can come to when writing a joke consistently from the same political perspective. And so that really fucking bothered me. And so that was, it was like that tight constraints and that was only a couple years ago. Obviously, I didn't get it because I didn't. I didn't fucking follow the rules. I did whatever I wanted to. I was like, please. I was like, I'm gonna do this as a writing exercise for me. But to tell me like what political views I have to have going into that, gross. Um, and uh, and, and so and and so now to see shows kind of, I guess, realizing that this across the board, we will always make jokes to protect the left and hurt the right, I guess they realize finally that that approach isn't working, that people are tired of it, that even a lot of Democrats are tired of it. It's just, it's just, it's not interesting. Um, and like, timing isn't great now. This is the time that you decided to do it? Wow. If we were doing it the whole time, it wouldn't feel like such a targeted attack on Joe Biden, right? It's not good. It's not good. We're just going to end up with Trump as president. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that's what's going to happen. So, you know, enjoy your little old old age jokes, everybody.
And, and don't come crying to me when fucking Trump is president for four years again. Um, let's see. All right. Uh, I, I was very into history today. There was something about that it because I wanted to kind of uh, create a show that was a a celebration of things I like of of love, uh, things that I love for Valentine's Day. And God damn it. Fox News actually printed an article with some history in it. And I couldn't believe it. Like, let's see what we think about it. Um, but uh, this is, says cancel culture, of course. They had to ruin it with that. Cancel culture in Congress dates back to John Quincy Adams, who refused to be gagged. Uh, Adams stood up to cancel culture as a congressman. A lesson millions today can learn from, uh, says Life After Power author. And obviously, I know this is like an elongated um, ad for this book, but I still think it's interesting the the historical research that was done. Americans have a low opinion of Congress. That's not news. At just 13% approval of Congress polls, about as well as a colonoscopy and only slightly better than thermonuclear war. But if Americans are frustrated by a legislature that seems incapable of action, imagine if Congress had forbidden itself from even talking about our nation's hardest problems. That's what happened when John Quincy Adams, who was elected to the House of Representatives after his presidency in 1830, tried to debate uh, the issue of slavery. Uh, the House had what was known as the gag rule, which prohibited members from even raising the topic. Of course, Fox would make this about slavery. But when Adams brought it up and his colleagues tried to kick him out of the House and silence him, the former president fought back. He refused to be canceled and let a culture of censorship keep him from saying what he knew was true. When John Quincy Adams left the presidency, defeated after one term. He was the least popular commander-in-chief since his father. Beaten by Andrew Jackson in 1828, former President Adams thought his political life was over. At 61 years old, after having served as an ambassador, senator, secretary of state, and president, there were no further heights to which the founding son could climb. For 18 months, he wallowed at home in Quincy, Massachusetts, reading and trying his hand at tree farming, only to find that he didn't have a green thumb. He might have stayed in Quincy for the rest of his days when a friend suggested to Adam's wife, Louisa, that her husband c consider re-entering politics. She responded, there are some very silly plans going on here and God only knows in what they will end, but I fear not at all to my taste. But when the party convention nominated him to represent Plymouth in the 22nd Congress, he won in a landslide. And President John Quincy Adams became Representative John Quincy Adams, the only former commander-in-chief to serve in the House. With victory in hand, he wrote, election as president of the United States was not half so gratifying to my inmost soul. Adams wasn't a slaveholder, and he knew slavery was evil, but he didn't enter Congress as a crusading abolitionist. He didn't actually know what he wanted to do when he arrived on Capitol Hill. Upon seeing his old friend back in Washington, Kentucky Senator Henry Clay jokingly asked how Adams felt upon turning boy again in the House of Representatives. But in a much lower position, Adams found a much higher calling. And I love that. Go where your where your work is needed. Go where you can make a difference, even if it's not the cloudiest spot. Cloutiest, not cloudiest. Cloudy with a T. With the 
threat of civil war hanging over the Capitol, Congress had a tradition of avoiding the issue of slavery altogether. Members were afraid of what would happen if they brought it up. And I mean, that's why I love this article, right? No one wants to talk about the really hard things because everyone's a fucking pussy ass bitch, okay? And they're not going to say that even on Fox News, right? Everyone is so scared of saying the wrong thing. And listen, I've said the wrong thing a million times and I'm con- con- going to continue to say the wrong thing because you need to sometimes say the wrong thing to have the open conversation about the topics. And this pathetic culture that we live in where no one can have real conversations because well, because half of it is because people are scared and I don't even blame those people for being scared right because there's there's a whole other group of people that are just waiting for someone to say the wrong thing so they can say haha you said the wrong thing you're a bad person let's write an article about it right how are we going to ever make any movement about that anytime you have a discussion about something there's going to be some slip-ups you're going to say some fucked up things you're going to bring up um you're going to bring up scenarios and then someone else in the conversation that you're having having is going to say, hey, that's why that idea is racist. That's why that idea is misogynistic. That's why that idea is xenophobic. And then the other person hopefully will either have, um, you know, they'll, they'll have a rebuttal or they'll have an aha moment and go, oh, my God, I never thought of that from that perspective before because I haven't lived your life. And that's how change is brought about. How change is not brought about is by having a long list of things that we aren't able to fucking discuss without being called fucking turf or something um uh, all right adam's anti-slavery sympathies were well known and more than forty thousand people had signed over 300 petitions on the issue addressed directly to him the right to petition is protected by the first amendment and congressman adams would read what the petitioners many of them women's groups or christian societies had to say presenting their petitions on the house floor much to the chagrin of the slaveholders in congress his colleagues were furious terrified by adams's advocacy and that he was bringing up the most explosive issue in the country the slaveholders fought back and passed a resolution to forbid the issue of slavery from being discussed at all shocked adams cried out am i gagged or am i not i love it especially if you're like into like uh drag or like gay culture like the fact that gagged is still around but like means something different now um and it's not tucking a dick even though that's what it seems (laughs) like you'd be like oh i'm gagged um if someone walks in like in a dress that is just absolutely fucking giving you say i'm gagged um with the question he inadvertently christened the new edict forbidding debates about slavery the gag rule the rules didn't hold adams back he would bring up the issue as often as he could in whatever way way he could, protecting the First Amendment right to petition and hardening in uh, his abolitionism over time. In an era of political violence, even duels on the House floor, (laughs) when men were men, am I right? And amid threats from one Southern congressman that he would cut Adams from ear to ear, Oh, Heath Ledger, Zaddy. The former president defied his foes at great risk. Upon reading about his exploits, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote admiringly that Adams was no literary gentleman, but a bruiser. He must have sulfuric acid in his tea. Just because the House had passed the gag rule didn't mean Adams was powerless. He pushed back in his own ways, calling a pro-slavery attempt uh, to annex Texas a war of conquest. 
He denounced the reintroduction of slavery to a territory where it had been previously abolished and delayed the admission of another slave state, which would have tipped the balance of power in the Senate. In the Amistad case, he represented enslaved men and women who had escaped their captors before the Supreme Court, winning them their freedom. His argument relied on appeals to the court's memory of the founding fathers, and he pointed to a copy of the Declaration of Independence hanging on the wall of the chamber, beseeching the justices. If these rights are inalienable, they are incompatible with the rights of the victor to take the life of his enemy in war or to spare his life and make him a slave. Representative Adams left his mark in other ways, too. He headed a 13-member select committee to investigate whether President John Tyler should be impeached, the first such committee in American history. Adams also helped establish the the Smithsonian Institution. By the time Adams got the gag rule repealed in um, in 1844, he'd done more than make history as the only former president elected to the House of Representatives. I think this is also a story, too. About like, you know, we talked like I said it before, like, you know, you go where your service is needed, but also just about not having too much pride to kind of be president, not really get any work done there and say, but you know what? My goal was to get work done. My, my goal was to make this country a better place. So even if I can't do it, even if even if I, you know, my my president was uh, my presidency was looked um, at as an embarrassment. I don't care. I'm going to I'm I'm not I'm not going to hide away because my president wasn't my presidency was an embarrassment. I'm going to try again. And there's other ways that I can try again because I really care about uh, making this country a better place. Like that's what a politician is. Right. OK, so he failed as president and then he fucking nailed it. He fucking nailed it here as a as a representative. He'd become the leading abolitionist in uh, Congress in the first half of the 19th century. He tied the cause of abolition to the purpose of the American founding. Use It's kind of like Larry David, like not really, didn't really get a lot done on Saturday Night Live and then went on to create Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Didn't mean he wasn't a good comedy writer. It just meant that that wasn't the place where he could get work done. SNL wasn't for fucking him, you know? Um, using his authority as the son of a founding father and his knowledge and experience in government to become an elder statesman, even as a junior member. When he died in 1848 at age 80 in the halls of the Capitol, he was described as a living bond of connection between the present and the past. Upon his death, Adams passed the torch of abolition to a young member of Congress, Abraham Lincoln, with whom he overlapped during one term and who served on the committee to arrange Adams's funeral. Adams didn't let his frustrations at defeat in 1828 get the best of him, and he didn't let his more powerful colleagues silence or cancel him. Against odds much tougher than today's Congress is facing, Adams moved the needle Uh, toward the principles of the American founding. He was respected, but he wasn't always popular. Say it, write that on your mirror, everyone. He was respected, but he wasn't always popular. A lot of you out there so worried about being liked and being popular. Doesn't fucking matter. If you're getting th- if you're getting shit done, you're gonna spend a lot of time being unliked and being unpopular. Lean in. 
His frustrated opponents, opponents once said of him that he was the acutest, the astutest, the archest enemy of Southern slavery that ever existed, the old man eloquent John Quincy Adams. Today, members of Congress can make a name for themselves on television or on social media using their positions at platforms and becoming talking heads rather than legislators. Oh my God, this just reminds me. And I don't, I think there's such a pylon on her in, and I don't like to add to it. But I do have a tumultuous relationship with her. Uh, AOC apparently was like front row at the Matt Reif show the other day. Girl, what's going on? What is going on? I know she likes comedy and that's a cool thing about her. But Matt Reif? That was the choice? Especially after all the pro- all the problems uh, that people had with his, um, you know, domestic abuse jokes. That's not even, you know, that's a, that wasn't even the problem I had with the special. I have you know, the problem was that you to- told me a fucking twenty minute story about a backpack under a seat on an airplane that had no ending. That was my problem with it. But anyway. Um, or they can make a difference by standing for first principles and reminding Americans of our nation's finest traditions. If they do that, maybe they'll restore Americans' faith in our institutions and they'll follow in the footsteps of the great statesmen who came before them. And if you're interested in write, uh, reading this whole book, this is an excerpt from Life After Power, Seven Presidents and Their Search for Purpose Beyond the White House, which I love that. You know, you know I love a search for purpose. And I, and I, and I, and I just think that's like, yeah, what if we looked at presidents and said, hey, yeah, they weren't the most successful presidents. That wasn't the best, you know, four or eight years of their life. But they really did make a lot of impact in in the society. Because, I mean, sometimes I think when you're president, your hands are tied in a lot of ways depending on who you have working with you and what the cli- the cultural climate is or the political climate is. But I was really proud of – I was really fucking proud of Fox for printing that article. Even though it was a long-form ad, I was still really proud of them. Wow. Really proud of them. I guess maybe this was the, this was their contribution to Black History Month. But anyway, good whatever it was, good. I mean, I like to I like to treat uh politicians and places like you know, bad boys. You got to you got to still say good job when you do a good job because if you could constantly give someone negative reinforcement, they why would they possibly do anything good ever or ever try? Cuz the result is always going to be the same. Um, okay. Next article. Uh man, well, I posted a clip uh during the week last week from a couple episodes ago about how liberals need to be more uh pro-America. And then of course people got, you know, because of course, as always with the clips, people took it really at face value and didn't read into it. And there is something, especially about a white presenting person. I say white presenting because the Jew issue is just wild these days. It's like Jews are so conveniently white when we when people want to target us as the oppressors, but then so conveniently not white when the alt-right wants to say who is the problem in the world. Like, so everyone wants to say the Jews are the problem, but it's for different reasons. And sometimes it's because you're – you're too white and sometimes because you're, you're not white enough. So anyway, that's been interesting. But yeah, no, uh, it's always interesting when uh, as a white, uh, you know, presenting person, you're on um, – and, I, and I, I consider myself white. Please don't think I don't. But it's just the Jewish part that's interesting. Um, so when you're on, on, on screen and people just think you're like run-of-the-mill Euro- European mixed white and people 
watch your clip and then just assume because you have like an American flag in the clip and you're talking and you're saying liberals should be more pro-America. They assume, number one, that you're not liberal. They assume that like that you're some kind of a white supremacist. They assume that you're anti-immigration. And it's funny because I actually had that clip recut a couple times because there was a part when I said something that if you were watching it out of context, it could seem uh, like it was like directed towards um, immigrants. And it certainly wasn't. This was directed mostly to people who have been here for many generations um, and who still like to go on tirades about how much they hate America, but then aren't doing anything to help it. And to be honest, like, uh, people who like newly immigrated here, those are the people who I hear talking um, the most positively about America, usually. And I mean, I think there's a could be a mix of reasons for that, including like shit like, you know, being afraid of kick, getting kicked out. And that's not cool. You should never be speaking positively because you're because of fear. That's not good. But no, I was speaking directly towards people like myself who have their them and their families have been there for several generations um and but they it's you know it's it's trendy to be a semi-privileged white person and talk about how terrible america is and then do nothing to about it um so it's interesting to see those comments um and people fighting in them and i stand by what i said i absolutely stand by what i said and i picked this article actually to reinforce the fact that like yeah things are not great here but I think that we can continue to work to make them better. And I also think like in a lot of ways, America is improving. It's still a really young country and there's going to be a lot of fucked up shit that happens um, on the way to it becoming a better country. Um, and this is uh, this is from The Washington Post, although I saw it all over. Uh, Madagascar law allowing castration of child rapists prompts criticism from rights groups, Right. And a lot of people online thought this was a great idea. Um, but I am very glad to live in America where something like this in modern times would never happen. I don't think it's great to be a child rapist, but I got to be honest, I don't think castration by the government is the correct way to go with this. Uh, Antonarivo, Madagascar. Madagascar's parliament has passed a law allowing for the chemical and in some cases, surgical castration of those found guilty of rape of a minor. The law has prompted criticism from international rights groups, but also found support from activists who say it's an appropriate deterrent to curb a, quote, rape culture. Parliament in the Indian Ocean Island uh, nation of 28 million passed the law on February 2nd and the Senate, the upper house, approved it last week. It must be now uh, ratified by the high constitutional court and signed into law by President Andre Rajolino, who first raised the issue in December. His government proposed the law change. And it's interesting that they actually use the um, the phrase rape culture because I really think of that more as like an adult heterosexual thing, but I guess not. 
Oh, it's just it's a little more vague than the way I was thinking about it. They're defining it as a, uh, a setting studied by several sociological theories in which rape is pervasive and normalized due to societal attitudes about gender and sexuality. Well, there okay, so there is a heavy lean on gender um, and sexual uh, and specifically gender in it. So I was not wrong because to me, rape culture. And uh, pedophilia are like the, they're different concepts, right? Like pedophilia is rape, but it's rape plus, you know, it's rape. It's like, you know how it's like LGBTQ plus it to me, uh, pedophilia is rape plus, whereas rape is, you know, when it's adults, there's no pedophilia in that. It's just rape. <coughs> I don't want to say rape light though. Um, all right. Justice Minister. Landy Mbalatina Rondra Montesoa, that's a very long name, sorry, said it's a necessary move because of an increase in child rape cases. In 2023, 600 cases of the rape of a minor were recorded, she said, and 133 already in January this year. That's a lot of our child rape. Madagascar is a sovereign country which has the right to modify its laws in relation to circumstances and in the general interest of the people. That person with a long name said, the current penal code has not been enough to curb the perpetrators of these offenses. Surgical castration will always be pronounced for those guilty of raping a child under the age of 10, according to the law's wording. Cases of rape against children between the ages of 10 and 13 will be punished by surgical or chemical castration. The rape of minors between ages 14 and 17 will be punished by chemical castration. So even for a febophilia, they're not fucking around. Wow. Um, offenders would also face sterner sentences of up to life in prison as well as castration. We wanted to protect children much more. The younger the child, the greater the punishment. Uh, chemical castration is the use of drugs to block hormones and decrease sexual desire. It is generally reversible by stopping the drugs. Surgical castration is a permanent permanent procedure. Several countries and some U.S. states, including California and Florida, allow for chemical castration for some sex offenders. Surgical castration as a punishment is much more rare. The use of both is highly contentious. Yeah, I mean, I think this is like a, re a really big human rights issue here. And it's also just, I mean, in a world where we're still relying on um, humans to make decisions about other humans, um, uh, guilt or innocence, th that, you know, it's it's just for the, the, the one or two people who would be chemically or surgically uh, castrated uh, accidentally or for a crime they didn't commit, like, nah, no bueno. The United Nations Children's Fund and others have often highlighted the high rates of sexual abuse against children in Madagascar, which also has one of the world's highest poverty rates. Exactly. It's like, go to the root of the problem. And additionally, um, what was I going to say about this? Like, yeah, go to the root of the problem in Madagascar. Oh, and also because, you know, I guess depending on you look at it, like, right, right, rape is a, is a, is a crime of power but when you have a culture in which specifically like pedophilic rape, child rape is prevalent, what is going into that? Because there's something like it's a m mental health issue, but then also 
a power issue? Like what's going, you got to look into that a little bit more because you can't just keep castrating everyone. That's not solving the issue. That's, I guess it's solving the issue for that individual person, but it's not solving the epidemic this culture seems to be going through right now. Some non-governmental organizations say the real number of child rapes is even higher than the official figures. Well, it always is. But many cases go unreported because it is such a taboo subject and victims are often ashamed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a large portion of child rape cases are incestuous, according to the NGOs. Madagascar's new law was criticized by rights group Amnesty International as inhuman and degrading treatment that was inconsistent with the country's constitutional laws. The law should focus on protecting victims, protecting victims and getting to the root of the problem and why this is so prevalent in your in your country, um, said Nico Wanico, an advisor for Madagascar at Amnesty. On the island... <laughs> complaint procedures and trials are not carried out anonymously, he said. There is a lack of confidence in the Malagasy criminal justice system due to opacity and corruption, and reprisals against rape victims are frequent. However, the law does not combat these factors. Uh, Nico, um, and this is N-C-I-K-O, Nikiko, uh, added that surgical castration was a problematic criminal sentence if anyone who underwent it was later exonerated of a crime on appeal. Exactly. He also raised doubts over the capabilities of medical authorities to carry out the procedures. And that is something to be really, really concerned about, especially when we're just fucking reading the article the other day of in America, them testing out uh, lethal you know, uh, lethal measures on people and then going, whoops, that didn't work out the way that we thought it was going to do because we used this guy as a human guinea pig. Uh, but amid the criticism, some activists in Madagascar agree with the change in the law because nothing else seems to be working. There really is a rape culture in Madagascar, said Jessica Lolo Irina Nivo Saheno of the Women Break the Silence group, which campaigns against rape and supports victims. I just love the theory, like, when you say, like, what what does your group do? Well, we campaign against rape. Like, oh, is there someone who's campaigning for it? I guess the guys who are doing it. Um, we are in the process of normalizing certain cases of sexual violence, also minimizing the seriousness of these cases. The new law is progress because it is a deterrent punishment. This could prevent potential attackers from taking action, but only if we as citizens are aware of the existence and importance of this new penalty. I mean, that's one to write into me about if you have thoughts on that. I mean, to me, yeah, you know, that's not the way to go about it. These uh chemical these like a uh, really violent things these uh, deaths decided um, by uh, on by our peers. I just don't think that's a solution for our uh, uh, for like a society that already seems like um, behind and unintelligent and overly violent. I don't think that's adding um, anything to it or really the solution that we think it is. I swear to God, if this fucking company called Podcast Tonight emails me one more fucking time, I'm gonna castrate them. Um. All right. I was looking through quickly through the mail the mailbox a little bit. Mm, 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 mm. All right. Moving forward. This okay. 
So um, I follow this tick. Um, well, I follow her on Instagram primarily. So there is an online um, account called Black Forager. And I fucking love this woman. She's so interesting. She knows a, a ton about nature and um, growing her own fruits and vegetables and really cool tricks um, using the earth around us. And I saw a reel that she did the other day. Um, it was actually a stitch. And it started with a woman asking, a white woman asking why we as a culture are so unsure of many of the plants that grow around us and why we don't feel more confident in being able to like pick a piece of fruit off a tree um, and, and know that that is okay for us or that it is legal. And she did this whole kind of mini lesson, Black Forager did, she did a whole mini lesson on the racist roots of foraging. Of course, it goes back to uh, slavery and when the slaves were freed, how, you know, they basically the government tried to make life difficult through them, you know, through creating the police that we know today to keep them, quote, in check. And then by things by like creating laws uh, against foraging so that they didn't have access to, you know, fruits and vegetables the way every human should have access to fruits and vegetables. So I found kind of a longer form article based on that that was actually written previously i just saw this real a couple days ago but previously she's spoken about this thing and i thought it was super interesting just because it was interesting and then also like a new fun interesting twist and something that you don't often talk about um during black history month so this is from huffington post the odds are stacked against black people who forage for food here's why um Alexis Nicole Nelson, a.k.a. Black Forager, and I recommend following her. She's fantastic, explains how racist laws from 150 years ago have affected the way she lives today. Um, uh, and this is her speaking. This is like a mini interview on what it's like to be a black forager today. Uh, I went through a phase where I was urban foraging exclusively wearing dresses with full makeup because I thought if I look the most palatable version of myself, even if someone doesn't know what I'm doing and the fact that they can't identify it makes them a little bit nervous, hopefully I look so inviting, so pleasant that they'll come and talk to me about it before they call the cops about it. And isn't that terrible? There's like someone walking around like picking little fruits off trees, which is not an experience that I feel I see a lot of my white counterparts even being a little bit familiar with. If you're brown or a black face living through primarily white spaces, you stand out by default. So a lot of times, just for the sake of our own safety, the last thing that you want to do is already have attention called to yourself because of your existence and then add on top of that the layer of doing a non-easily identifiable action that sometimes makes people nervous. I feel like I have to have a speech ready to go at all times, regardless of where I am. I'm not the kind of person who can really get away with foraging in spaces where I'm not supposed to be. Um, and just so a little background on her videos, she makes videos that share foraging tips on topics like identification, um, like, you know, whether something is poisonous or not, sustainable cultivation, and what to make with foraged foods. Oh, it's 
so interesting. I love it. Uh, to call it racism in foraging would be a little bit reductive because it's not that people in the foraging community are going out of their way to gatekeep or ostracize people of color. It's very much something that has happened culturally. The things that set that into motion were purposeful, but they were purposeful 150 years ago. And so now we're kind of just dealing with the remnants of them now, right? At this point, there is about a century and a half of cards stacked against black people for participating in foraging activities, activities like trapping, even activities like fishing or hiking, outdoor things in general. Um, up until right around when the Civil War was ending, much like it still is in a lot of parts of the UK, foraging was extraordinarily normalized. Foraging and hunting on public property was not just normalized, it was the norm. That was just something that people were doing to supplement their meals, supplement their income, and foraging and hunting on other people's property were not necessarily as frowned upon as I would say it is now. In most places, it was considered, um, and you'll see actually a little bit about like foraging on other people's property if you watch things like The Garden about the intentional community. They dealt with that a little bit on there. Um, in most places, it was considered a civil offense as opposed to a criminal offense like it is everywhere now. What, what kind of began that shift was in southern states once the slaves were freed, recently freed black people knew how to forage, and there was a desire to cut off their opportunity for financial integrity and financial freedom, right? And we see this with um, uh, the er eradication of slavery. We saw this with suffrage. It's like, okay, we're going to knock down this law that is preventing people from doing things, but we're going to still make it really um, – uh, difficult for these my group minority groups to access the things that they need to access to reach the level of finance and power that you need to to even hold a candle to us white men. A lot of them knew how to forage from parents and grandparents who were taught by the indigenous peoples who were also very much subjected to and victimized by these laws that were then put in place. For a lot of black folks, they expected to be able to provide for themselves and even expected to be able to make some money with what they were gathering and trapping, which they already had to know how to do because a lot of the meals that you were getting on the plantations were not enough. They were meager and that's being generous. But with trespass suddenly becoming a criminal offense, well, boom. There's a whole lot of space where you otherwise may have been able to get food that you can't because suddenly you're looking at having to pay bail, having to serve time if you're caught, and you get in trouble. Concurrently, metaphorical fences and sometimes physical fences were put up around public property. As a freed person, you didn't have land. Nobody really ended up getting the promise of 40 acres and a mule. So if you couldn't forage and hunt on public property and you couldn't forage and hunt on other people's property, what did you have left? The answer is nothing. Thing. The answer for a lot of people was having to return back to the plantations they had only just walked away from as sharecroppers because at least they were able to provide a little bit for themselves, a little bit for their families and communities. It's super unfortunate because with those laws kind of being put in place to subjugate black people, they weren't the only ones who felt the blow. Indigenous people also very much had to suffer because of those laws and poor white people had to suffer because of those laws. Foraging has gone in and out and in and out of fashion over the last century. Once the Great Depression happened, a lot of people were foraging more regardless of their background because of the horrendous economic downturn. Then when we kind of get over the hump of World War II and moved into the 50s, 
foraging was seen as something that you did if you were poor. If you didn't want to project poverty, you would just go to the grocery store. You'd have your ticky-tacky house in suburbia with your white fence, and no one would see you wandering the streets and creeks looking for food because it didn't tell the story that you wanted to be telling. For black folks in the 50s especially, the last thing you wanted to be doing was protecting poverty um, in spaces where you already have the odds stacked against you to begin with. The cherry on top of why I think we see so few black folks in the outdoors period, not even just in the foraging space, is in the 50s and 60s. Uh, it was dangerous to be a person of color by yourself in these spaces that our population was dominated by white people. It was not a safe thing to do with how many deaths and lynchings we saw in the first half of the 20th century. It was a scary concept. It's kind of the reason why even now a lot of black folks don't swim. It makes sense that now it has been culturally ingrained in us for multiple generations now to stay away from some of these spaces because your great-grandparents were staying away from those spaces. They sure as hell weren't teaching your grandparents who ventured this whole war um who ventured this whole war teaching your parents who then didn't teach you. I, for one, I'm just very lucky that both of my parents were very outdoorsy because their respective parents were very outdoorsy. So we kind of had a bit of a break in the chain, but it means my Nana's outdoorsiness and that partially stems uh, from the fact that she had to work in the cranberry bog in Massachusetts as a teenager with a lot of her siblings. I guess I'm just lucky that was kind of our foot in the door with our love of growing things and our love of the outdoors in general. So I just think that's very interesting. I don't think anyone, uh, most of us, you know, especially on the coasts, are th- spending a lot of time thinking about foraging, but that's why I love um There are certain Instagram accounts or TikTok accounts like Black Forager that I absolutely love because it's giving you an an accurate slice of life into um, something that you probably I could have gone the rest of my life without ever having thought about. And I really, really like it. And like, yeah, no, I'm not going to be foraging anytime soon, but I think it's very interesting. I like it. I like talking about it. I like knowing that it exists. Forge on. Um, All right. Now, the last thing we're going to talk about right now is the son of one of the leaders of Hamas. Um, he had gone quiet for a while, but he is has been known to talk uh, back and forth um, over the years. And an interesting fact that Mike pointed out to me before, right before we started recording today is about the net worth of the Hamas leaders. So, you know, we like to talk about how corrupt America is. Every place is corrupt, okay? Um, every place where there is a defined power structure, you're going to find money in places where it shouldn't be. You're going to find too much money in places where it shouldn't be. So, um, and this was, this one piece of information was reported by the New York Post in November of last year, and a couple other spaces reported it as well. Um, but it, it says, while their people languish in poverty and are treated as human shields, the leaders of Hamas live billionaire lifestyles. The terror group's three top leaders alone are worth a staggering total of $11 billion and enjoy a life of luxury in the sanctuary of the Emirate of Qatar. So got to be honest, even Osama bin Laden wasn't living that way, okay? He was living underground, baby. He was not living um, an $11 billion lifestyle. 
And so, you know, yeah, I mean, the problem here is Hamas. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you were still, I mean, I think a lot of people still think the problem is Israel. I mean, I think that, I think Netanyahu's the problem for sure. I think Netanyahu's the problem and I think Hamas is the problem. And it, and also like people who think whether in America or in Palestine, who think that Hamas is doing things for the greater good um, of their people. I think this is really great proof that it's not. Your people are dying. Your people are living in poverty and you have $11 billion. That's disgusting. Um, so, yeah, um, I was pointed towards uh, the direction of the son of Hamas. I think he's also called the Green Prince quite often um, by this interview that the free press did. And again, I know we have mixed feelings on the free press. I have mixed feelings on the free on the free press, too. But it's interesting. And, they're, and they come at angles and they do pieces that I don't see anywhere else. Right. So he was interviewed by. Um, Douglas Murray. And I wasn't familiar with Douglas Murray previously. I did do some research. He seems like pretty conservative, which I don't love. And then he has like a British accent. So it makes thing, bad things seem like they're better when they're coming out of his mouth. And I don't like to be tricked by the British in that way. Um, but uh, he conducts a long form interview and obviously like an hour long interview. So we don't need to um, go into that now. But if you want to watch it, it is available on the free press. I think it's on the paid part, though. So Mossab uh, Hassan Youssef, that is the son of one of the um, heads of Hamas, has lived an extraordinary life. Born in Ramallah, Youssef spent his youth involved in Hamas activities. That was expected of him, given that his father, Hassan Youssef, is one of the founders of the Islamist movement. Growing up, Mossab Youssef embraced his father's ideology and was arrested by Israeli authorities multiple times, starting at age 10 for crimes such as throwing stones at Israeli settlers and purchasing guns. But during a stint in Israeli prison in the late 90s at age 18, something um, something changed. Or maybe a better way of putting it is that he flipped. He became an Israeli informant. Eventually, he became Israel's most valuable intelligence asset, foiling suicide bombings and other terror attacks. Youssef has since been outspoken, not just about Hamas, but about radical Islamic terrorism more generally. In 2008, he converted to Christianity shortly before he was granted asylum in the United States. For a while, Youssef stopped doing press and seemed to be trying to live a quiet life away from the media and the death threats. But after Hamas massacred 1,200 Israelis and kidnapped 250 more on October 7th, um, and I don't know if you saw, but it seems like a lot more of those um, Israeli hostages uh, are dead than um, the Israeli army had initially estimated, right? So if like we're talking about like that's why Israel keeps fighting to get the hostages back, I, I believe the hostages to just be something like a reason that Netanyahu can kind of give to say like, oh, there's a reason why we're still doing that until we get these hostages back. And I think a lot of people who are, pro-Israel have have be- have believed that. But Netanyahu, his goal is to not stop until fucking Gaza is flattened. He and and, you know, he wants to get com- completely wipe Hamas off the face of the earth. And I think wiping Hamas specifically, get, getting rid of Hamas is a good idea. I don't think there's anything good good in the group Hamas. Um, but in doing that, he's 
they're they're just killing tens of thousands of of innocent civilians. And uh, Youssef, who is interviewed in this piece, makes it very clear that Gaza should have been evacuated. That we should have, you know, everyone, the world should have done anything, everything in their power to evacuate Gaza, and that has not at all been done. And Netanyahu is a fucking loose cannon. Can't cannot cannot be trusted. Um. So, uh, all right. So, but after Hamas massacred 1,200 Israelis and kidnapped 250 more on October 7th, Youssef is speaking out once again against the terrorist group he knows all too well. That's why he sat down with free press columnist Douglas Murray in Tel Aviv recently. Youssef is unsparing in his assessment of the movement he grew up in and the damage it has done to Palestinian society. Hamas, he says, has created a generation of people willing to destroy themselves to cause the most destruction possible. And I think that's really interesting um, that he's saying that coming from the inside because um, he is, you know, obviously against all the civilian deaths as anyone with two brain cells is is against. It's horrific. Um, but he also is very clear that Hamas is not on the side of their of their people as they claim to be. They want to bring um, uh, like an, Isl- an Islamic uh, chokehold to the West and when I say that, you know, I guess it seems like it, like it could be like anti-Islam, but it, it, the they think very lowly of the Western world, like Hamas, right? And they think like we're you know disgusting capitalist pigs. I mean, we could agree with some of that, um, but they also like the way that we live freely in our sexuality that they think is disgusting. They want to bring um, ideals in which. Women, uh, definitely gay people. Um, I can only imagine what would happen to people of color who aren't the people of color that are their people of color. Um, what would go down there? Um, but they want to bring Islam uh, to the Western world, and they will. And his, his assessment is they will. And I, I think it's kind of my assessment too. Is their goal is like they will not stop until that's done. Like that's their goal. Okay. Um, I don't think they have the 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 manpower and the weapon power to do that right now. But that is also why Netanyahu keeps fighting. But Netanyahu is, he, I don't know what is going through his head that he thinks just leveling Gaza and all these, um, in, you know, innocent people dying is the way to do it or to get uh, the rest of the world on their side. Shocking. Um, all right. But even Youssef, who understands the hate that fuels Hamas better than most, was shocked by the attack on October um, 7th. I was surprised not by Hamas's brutality, but by the scale of the event, he says. There is no human language that uh, that can describe the evil that took place on October 7th, which I think is an interesting sentence to, to, to say now after tens of thousands of people have died in Gaza. It's like, well... I mean, there is human language to describe it because now something, you know, way, way more innocent people died in, in Gaza. Uh, and that's just not a and that's just uh, not just a war crime. It's not just killing. It's a genocide. I will agree with with my thoughts that I think Hamas is trying to commit genocide on the um, on Jewish people. I do think that is what they're trying to do. But then also to retaliate uh, I do believe that Netanyahu has now started a genocide uh, against the Palestinian people. So two ge- two genocides don't make no genocide. Doesn't make anything right. It means it means we're, you're both you're both trying to completely um, 
take the other race off the planet Earth. And I don't think that's a uh, that's that's not a solution. Uh, what makes such evil possible? The answer lies in the hate-filled beliefs that Yusuf's father helped spread. Jihadists think that they are the sword of God on Earth. Mossab tells Douglas that they are actually manifesting the punishment against the Jewish people for being disobedient. A hundred percent. And if you want to talk about why Osama bin Laden's letter to America went viral on TikTok, go back and look at that, and go to page two, three, four, and where. They truly think the existence of Jewish people is the problem. They think that's the whole problem. Whereas even if you, you know, even I think for people who are like anti-Hamas or anti-Islam, they're not saying the Palestinian people are the, are the problem. They're saying that the specific uh, people, people are the problem. Because the problem with, um, Jew, like, I guess the Jewish religion is that Jews are both a people and a religion. Whereas if you say, like, the problem... Um, uh, with Hamas or uh, with Palestine is Islam, the people and the religion can be separated. Whereas with Jews, it's conflated. And and I think that's part of the reason for the heavy amount of, of anti-Semitism that has gone on for um, decades and decades. Uh, Yusuf's unique perspective and his moral clarity makes him an essential voice right now. It's also what makes his interview with Douglas required viewing. Their conversation is available now on the free press. Um, so that's a little bit on that. And then I tried to pull up another article. There wasn't a ton of coverage on this guy. They're mostly like YouTube videos. And that's never like a good, you know, there's, there's, it's obvious that, um, news outlets are very selective about when and why they let Mossab Hassan Youssef speak. And I mean, part of it is probably because um, there's a dangerous element to letting him speak. It's putting a target on your back in some ways. Um, but I think it's powerful that the son of one of the leaders of this this huge terrorist group has, you know, done things to help imprison his father, uh, you know, uh, converted to Christianity, became a spy for the other side. I do think that I, I, I think this was a really interesting uh, piece of information to learn this week. So this is from Fox News. And again, this is older. This is from October of 2023. Uh, son of 19th, so post October 7th. Son of Hamas leader breaks silence on decision to denounce terror group. They don't care about Palestinians, which is a concept that we've been talking about on this show for a long time. Um, I think that a lot of Palestinians were lied to. They did um, initially uh, vote uh, Hamas into power. And Again, very similar to Donald Trump, I think there was a lot of promises made. And in reality, they just wanted to get into power and they don't give a shit about the people. Just the way I, I don't think Donald Trump actually gives a shit about any American people, whether or not you think he does. Didn't we cover on the show, though, that they were pretty much elected at gunpoint? They weren't elected. At, what do you mean at gunpoint? Like I thought, like their like their gunpoint. Hamas went to war with the other Palestinian. Well, the, yes, the other group. I forgot. I forgot the name. The other group. I don't feel like it was at gunpoint, though. I mean, and there had been a lot of polls since that kind of make it like even um, as far as like approval ratings. I think there's still like a 52, 53 percent approval rating of Hamas. I think, I think it's a case of people being lied to. I mean, as this destruction, and also because I think. Um, it's so easy, and why wouldn't you, to believe that, you know, when you have a, an, an enemy that Hamas can point to in the Israeli 
people in the Israeli government, like it's much easier to hate them. They're further away. They don't look like us. They don't believe the same things we do, right? It's like you have such a perfect um, group of people to hate. No need to hate Hamas. No need to believe that they lied to you. Uh, the son of a founding Hamas leader broke his silence on his decision to denounce the terrorist group after he turned on his own family and converted to Christianity, suggesting Israel explore using gas to get Hamas out of the tunnels in Gaza. Mossab Hassan Youssef, who spied in favor of the Israelis and sought asylum in the U.S., spoke out on his decision to leave the life of terror behind and explained what he believes Israel should be doing should uh, do during Fox and Friends on Thursday. Um, and again, like I'm just reading from Fox because this was like the best coverage of it. Uh, uh, American media in general. I even looked on Al Jazeera. Like they have covered Mossab before, but not in a concise enough way to kind of t tell you what what he has been talking about. And he does go into hiding sometimes too. Youssef told Fox News' Brian Kilimede, um, uh, that Israel should explore using gas after evacuating civilians in Gaza. It sounds horrible, but I don't see any other option. The tunnels are interconnected and gas could be one of the solutions. But this has to be in the right time. We cannot just rush into Gaza. There's no modern army that is prepared for this type of war. And most importantly, we need to get the civilians out of the picture. As long as there are civilians there, then the operation might be incomplete, he said. Yusuf also spoke out about his decision to turn on his family and become a Christian. Uh, I was born at the heart of Hamas leadership, and I know them very well. They don't care for the Palestinian people. They do not regard the human life, Yusuf told Kilmeade. Um, I saw their brutality firsthand back in 1996 when I spent about a year and a half in Megiddo prison. They killed so many Palestinian people at that point, and this is when I decided that I cannot be together with this movement. I had to be honest with myself. Even though Hamas gave me advantages, I was like a prince in that world, but I did not like them, he continued. I turned against even my own blood because this is how much I did not like Hamas, and today, 25 years later, they are the rulers of Gaza, and we see what they are capable of doing. His remarks come nearly two weeks after the terror group carried out a massacre on Israeli border communities, murdering and dismembering civilians, including children and taking hostages, which, again, kind of interesting to hear to hear that. It's like, yes, horrific. But like what has gone on in Gaza is just the undoing of a whole people. Um, Israel declared war shortly thereafter, and the Israel Defense Forces have traded airstrikes with Hamas as a ground invasion remains imminent. Hamas is not a national movement. Hamas is a religious movement with a goal to establish an Islamic state, Youssef said. They don't care for nationalism. Actually, they are against nationalism. But that's my understanding that they are using the Palestinian cause only to achieve their goals. So the long-term goal is transforming the Middle East and the world into an Islamic state. And I think that's a really, okay, right. And it's not, this is not the first time we've heard that concept, right? And I think that's what's really easy to go over. Yes, it is disgusting what is happening in Gaza. The amount of innocent people that have been absolutely slaughtered, their starvation, it is unfucking fathomable. But what is also very clear, I think there's like really no ifs, ands, or buts about it, is that Hamas wants to transform the rest of the world into an Islamic state. 
They hate the way the Western world lives. They despise it. The freedoms that we enjoy, that that they don't want that. They spit upon that. Okay. That's that's without to me, without argument. That's a hundred percent. Um, and that's the part that I feel like people are really overlooking, right? I want ceasefire too, because this is what 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 is happening now is not helping anything. This is just I mean, if anything, I would think Hamas is just more pissed, but they don't even care. They don't even care about their people. They just they just want to win the battle they want to win. They don't care about human life. Um, but Youssef said the real culprit behind the scenes is Iran, a known sponsor of the terror group. The country's foreign minister posted an ominous tweet on Wednesday that said time is running out for Israel. Uh, Iran is the real master in this picture, Youssef said. Hamas does not serve the Palestinian people. Hamas serves Iran. Those are the masters of Hamas. So their lie about nationalism, that they are a national movement, they are using Palestinian people as a human shield. We need to free Gaza from um, Hamas, he continued. Uh, Israel is doing the Palestinian uh, people the greatest favor by bringing Hamas down. I don't at all agree I don't agree with that sentence because they're not murdering. I don't think you're doing anyone a favor by murdering their entire family. Okay. Again, that's what Israel, um, the IDF at Netanyahu at the hands of Netanyahu is doing right now. Okay. Um, do, does I, do I think it's correct that you can't keep your eye off Hamas and they need to be dealt with and they need to, I I hate saying anyone needs to die, but Hamas needs to die. Yeah. I, I do think that, but this way that you're doing it, just fuck airstrikes, just full full buildings, leveling the entire Gaza. Nah, that's not the way to do that. At least 4,800 people have been killed on both sides. That number has escalated since this article has been written since the war began earlier this month, including at least 30 Americans. All right. So, um, yeah, I'm going to try to look more. I'm going to watch more of that interview. I think that's extremely interesting. I always think it's the the kind of most interesting advocates are the people who have who kind of like the show were able to live both sides of it right because there's so much especially with uh this more than other uh issues in society um it is very much our side versus the other side and i will not see any uh gray area in it and it's hard to with the amount of death and destruction it's hard how can how, it's it's tough it's tough to see a gray area um but I implore you to try and do so. Um, and every week I learn something new about this and I'm going to keep learning. Um, and maybe one day there'll be peace on earth, but probably not in my lifetime, uh, unfortunately. All right. So that's the show for today, guys. Thank you so much for joining me on Without a Country. I appreciate you being here uh again if you are in los angeles and you're watching this you know on tuesday or if you're watching this uh on wednesday night hell go run to the 10 30 show at the comedy store go get a ticket that 10 30 show that won't be sold out the eight o'clock that's long sold out but the 10 30 show that's not sold out so come show up in your pajamas i don't care show up in your pajamas sneak some chocolate in your purse and come to the comedy store and watch uh the guys we fucked valentine's day show that's going to be so much fun. Uh, Christina and I will be floating around LA all this week. And then uh, if you're in New York City and you want to see uh, Guys We Fucked, the experience, uh, our residency at the MasterCard Midnight Theater in Midtown, the next show is on uh, Thursday, March 7th. And we're going to take a couple months break after that because I am going to head out um, and do a tour. So again, if you want to see Guys We Fucked before I head out, 
uh, make sure to go to the MasterCard Midnight Theater on March 7th. You can also live stream that. I always forget if you're not in New York, you can live stream that show. The live streams are great, great quality, great cameras. That's a really fun way to do that and a cheaper ticket price too. And then Washington, D.C., I am headlining the D.C. Comedy Loft uh, February 29th through March 2nd with Chloe LeBranch. That's five shows there. Those tickets have been on sale for a while, so make sure to nab them because the the tickets are really uh, dwindling at this point. So make sure to get into those shows. It's going to be so fun. Do love, you know, D.C., you're an interesting city. Let's see. Let's see. Maybe it'll be a little trashier at the DC Comedy Loft than it is at the DC Improv. We'll see. And then a uh, larger tour will be announced very soon. Just getting all those ticket links together for you. Um, listen to Guys We Fuck, the Anti-Slut-Shaming Podcast. Follow me on all social media at Philanthropy Gal. Oh, and if you want to visit my shop, my brick and mortar in person before we go to online only, you only have until the end of March, Okay end of March to go to that store. I always Instagram when I'm there in person, but if I'm not there, John will be there. We're open Wednesday through Saturday, 12 p.m. to 5 p.m. It's 1989 Palmer Avenue, Larchmont, New York. The store is called Perfectly Centered. It's mostly sports cards and memorabilia, but we also do have um, interesting uh, vintage horror and science fiction lobby cards and books and, you know, kind of weird non-sports things that you might be interested in come on down to the shop uh in the meantime seek the truth uh and don't let people bully you into like making a political stance that you don't fully agree with or that you're not fully informed about okay so we're gonna see that more and more especially going into this fucking election people saying why haven't you spoken up about this but they 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 don't only mean why haven't you spoken up about this they mean why haven't you spoken about up about this, sharing the same exact opinion that I want you to have and that I think you should have based on your uh, political history. And that's fucked up. And don't let people bully you into that shit. Do your own research. Have your own opinions. Um, All right. This has been Without a Country. Uh, We will talk to you next week. Bye. (laughs) 